Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We're jumping back into our Bible study series on the life of Peter. We call it from fisherman to follower of Jesus. And we've made quite a bit of progress. This is the 17th study. I looked today, I think we got another five or six left because we've been tracing Peter from the time he shows up in the Gospels all the way through the book of Acts and how Jesus made an impact on his life and how Jesus used him in his life to make an impact on the first century world. All right, the title of tonight is Peter's Miraculous Ministry. Now, we've seen some miracles already in uh, Jesus' interaction with Peter because Jesus did a lot of miracles. We've even seen um, that Peter has uh, participated in God doing miracles through him, and we looked at one in particular in detail when he and John were on their way to the temple and uh, God healed the lame man through their um interaction with him. But um, we're going to be looking more at some more miracles tonight and the idea of miracles and why does God do miracles, why does God not do miracles, and that kind of thing, all right? And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9. We'll read the story in just a little bit, uh, verses 31 to 43. But before we do, let me ask you, what is a miracle? If somebody were to ask you, um, I've heard about miracles, what is a miracle? How would you define a miracle? Something that happens, I threw that in, that you cannot explain naturally. Very good. Somebody got something to add to that. Chris. Okay, it can involve a need being met in a person's life at a location. That by itself isn't quite a miracle because we could meet somebody's need, right? Or whatever. But you're right though, Chris. Most of the time, the miracles we think of and we rejoice in is when it meets a need. Right, And most of the miracles we see in the Bible are miracles and people rejoice because it meets a need. Um, did I see another hand over here? Something to add? Joe? Okay, many times it's not logical, okay, because it's not natural. It's, yeah, Vita. Something that's supernatural and cannot be proven by science. These are all great definitions. A lot of definitions you can find in dictionaries and on the Internet. Um, the one I have in my notes, which I found in a dictionary on the Internet, it says, an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. Okay. So all the definitions that were given are definitely true. I think we all had an idea of what a miracle was, but to put it into words. Let me give you a quick review in the background to the text we're going to be looking at here in Acts chapter 9. Um, we're not going to review all the way back to the beginning of Peter following Jesus, but in the book of Acts, we see that Peter emerges as the leader of the church on the day of Pentecost, and he's continuing to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Eventually, that uh, position will transfer over to James, the brother of Jesus. We'll talk about that um, a couple weeks down the road. But he's the leader. And uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, one of the miracles that we see details for, him and John going to the temple, and a lame man is healed. As a result of that, Peter begins to preach. A crowd gathers. They are arrested. And they are warned, stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. So they immediately go back, pray about it, 
ask God for boldness. He gives it, fills them with the Holy Spirit. They immediately go out and start preaching and teaching about Jesus again. And shortly after that, they're arrested again. Not just Peter and John this time, but all of the apostles. They are warned again, but since they were already warned one more time, they are um, disciplined even more firmly. They're beaten. And we're not just talking about a slap on the wrist. We're talking about a severe beating. And they leave that situation rejoicing that they're accounted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And at the end of that story in chapter 5, verse 42, how did they respond? It says, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. And all along, we see, even in the midst of this persecution and this pressure and this pushback, the church is growing and multiplying, and God is doing great things. Um, they find a need for more leaders, and so they establish what we today call deacons. Um, seven deacons who are going to take care of some everyday needs and stuff. But God begins to use these deacons to do ministry, preaching and teaching. And one of them is Stephen, and he's teaching in the synagogue, and the people he's teaching get so upset, they arrest him. He's on trial for his life, and they stone him to death. Well, at that stoning is a man by the name of Saul. And Saul begins to lead a great persecution. Saul is a very zealous for God, and he thinks Jesus is an imposter and someone who's leading people astray. So he does everything he can to round up and arrest and persecute and prosecute and everything Christians. And, and it leads to a lot of Christians leaving Jerusalem. And that was in God's plan because as they went out, they took the gospel all over the place. One of the places they took the gospel to was a place called Samaria. And the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews and the Jews were enemies of the Samaritans. But the gospel goes to Samaria with another one of the deacons. His name is Philip. He preaches there. Many people become Christians. Peter and John get sent up there to check it out and say, did God really save some of our enemies? And he did. And they prayed for them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And uh, what happens shortly after that in the book of Acts is that Saul has an encounter with Jesus himself. And Saul's converted, becomes a Christian, and becomes a preacher, and is going to become a missionary and an evangelist. And that's where we pick up the story today. Okay, so we're going to first look at the story. We've broken it up into a couple different sections, and then toward the end, we'll talk about some other practical applications, although we'll see some applications as we go along. So as we look at the story, the first part of the story is just one verse. Number one, the church experiences peaceful growth. The church experiences peaceful growth, Acts 9.31. So after all this stuff, Saul becomes a Christian, and now there's nobody else to lead the people who's persecuting. So it says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now look at how the church has grown. It started in Jerusalem. Then it went out to Judea, which was the surrounding area, up into Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, where Jesus spent most of his time when he was alive, and then even to Samaria, as we mentioned before, the enemies of the Jews, which is kind of between Judea and Galilee. And the church is growing. And the church is having great peace because the primary persecutor, Paul, has become a Christian. And nobody else rose up with that same zeal and drive to persecute it doesn't mean everything's easy, but it's not near as hard as it was. And so the, it, before we go on to the main part of the story, I just want to point out two things here. It says that as the church is growing, 
What are two things that, that um, Luke, the writer of Acts, says? It says that the church is growing, walking in the fear of the Lord. On your note sheet, I put it this way, that the church is um, experiencing peaceful growth, guided by the fear of the Lord. Now, you might think, well, why does it say the fear of the Lord? Why, should, why doesn't it say because of the love of the Lord? Okay, And not talking about God's love for us, but because of our love for him. Why does it say the fear of the Lord? I mean, if we've got a relationship with God, do we need to fear him? What does that word fear there mean? Reverence. Reverence. Yes, it means awe. It means giving honor. It means giving respect. Now, there is an aspect of fear in the fact that God's like a good father, and if we don't behave, he's going to discipline us. All right? And so, I mean, how many of you loved your father, but you also had a little bit of fear of him? I mean, a healthy fear. Hopefully, you didn't have a father where you had an unhealthy fear, and there's a reason for it. If you did, I'm sorry for that, but... Yeah, you know, and, and, and just want to point out that, that love for God and fear of God are both very important and we need to have them in a balanced way. If all we have is this love, we may not, and we don't fear Him, we can take God for granted, we can treat Him very lightly. Alright? Be very easy to just go and do our own thing. If we just have fear, even if it is the awe, honor, respect, but the love is lacking. We're constantly afraid. Somehow we're going to displease God. Somehow we're, we're going to, he's going to zap us. We need to have that balance. Okay? They're both important. But then he also mentions in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the church goes forward and grows encouraged by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, back, I think it was last year, we did a study of Jesus' teaching in the upper room. Talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. He called him the comforter. Because that's one of many uh, things that he plays, one of the th- many roles that he plays in our lives to comfort us, another word for that is to encourage us and to strengthen us. And I'm so thankful that those are both available for us today too. Amen? Amen. Well, Luke started his story of Acts um, talking about Jesus speaking with his disciples before he sent into heaven. And in Acts 1.8, we have a key verse that's kind of an outline for the book tells what's going to happen, and it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. Well, we just said that some of that's happened, right? What's the next step? Had they been a witness in Jerusalem? Yeah. Had they been a witness in Judea? Yeah, had they been a witness in Samaria? Surprised them to death, but yeah, they have. So what's the next step? The uttermost parts of the earth, and this is going to be a big step. They were surprised that God would even reach out and give the gospel to the Samaritans who were their enemies, but now God's going to take them to the next step that's going to blow them away, that God actually wants to save Gentiles. All right? And um, God is setting that up. And our story tonight are some are some things that happen in Peter's life that leads right to the edge of that. Next week, our lesson is going to be about how he begins to take that step over the line that's going to just throw the whole, not just the Jews, but the Christians, the Jewish Christians, into a tizzy. Is this really for real? God loves Gentiles and God wants to save Gentiles? Well, our stories tonight kind of leads up to that. Okay? So... Going on, number two, Jesus heals Aeneas. Let's look at verses uh, 
32 to 35 of Acts chapter 9. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, see, things have settled down. Now he can travel. He's going around ministering to various churches and believers and, and I'm sure preaching the gospel. So now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we see Peter is traveling, and he's going farther and farther away from Jerusalem. We know he'd made a trip to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And it says that when he and John went to Samaria and they prayed for them, they filled with the Holy Spirit. That on the way back, they took their time, and they stopped in a number of towns and cities in Samaria and along the way and began to preach the gospel. Um, but now because there's peace in general, he's able to travel around. So he goes uh, traveling around. He stops in Lydda, which is a town about 23 to 29 miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in the center of the country. And if you go northwest toward um, the Mediterranean, okay, it's on the way. And um, there's a church here. There are believers here. Uh, we don't know how it started, but it could have been started by Philip because it says that Philip traveled all through that area and preached the gospel, and many people became believers. It was a very important town on an important trade route. But as Peter is in Lydda ministering to the believers there, there's a man there who has been paralyzed uh, for eight years. Okay, By this time, with that kind of a record, there's no hope in the natural. All right, It's incurable. And Jesus heals him. All right, But notice something here. Peter didn't pray for him. At least it's not recorded here that he prayed for him. Why, why do you think that Peter, or at least it's not recorded, didn't pray for him? Any thoughts? It's kind of an unusual situation because you read a lot about people praying for people and then God heals them or whatever. But in this case, he doesn't pray for him. Okay? You're thinking that he's praying? Okay. How could... Let me ask you this. How could Peter just stand there and state, Aeneas, Jesus is healing you? Basically, the, the, the way it's worded here is he's saying, Jesus is healing you right now. How could Peter say that? The power of Jesus was present. Okay, Lynn? Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit was operating in and through him. And I would add to that that Peter knew that that was the case. I believe that Peter knew he didn't just say that because he hoped it. He didn't just say that because he was a man of faith, but that God had revealed to him that Jesus is healing him right now. He didn't even need to pray. Now, I'm not saying he didn't. I guarantee you, the Aeneas had prayed many times, and probably his friends and those around him had prayed for him. But it's not recorded because I think that basically Peter is ministering to him, and he sees this guy, and it's like, I don't even need to pray. Jesus is telling me right now, the Holy Spirit's telling me, God's healing, and it's not, he doesn't, not that he wants to, but he is right now. And so he told him that, okay? Um, it's interesting because if you like to compare things, and, and I think one of the reasons why Luke put this in the story is that when you go back to Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus healed a lame man. And then you look ahead to Paul's ministry, he's going to end up healing a lame man. And um, just kind of kind of interesting along those lines there. I did put a note here on your note sheet, letter A. Aeneas' healing was verifiable. What does verifiable mean? You could what? 
You could fact check it. You had to use today's, today's terminology. You can fact check it. All right. In other words, you knew it happened, right? You say, well, obviously he, it was. I mean, he had been paralyzed for eight years. Now he can walk. And Peter says, listen, take up your mat. All right. And he does. But I put that in there on purpose. Okay. Because there's some kind of funny teaching that has gone around through the history of the church and actually through the last couple of decades that, you know, God wants to heal his people. And if you're sick, you should pray for that. And that's true. And that you should just claim your healing. Now, that statement by itself is a good statement. If by that you mean Jesus, I know you love me. I know you want to heal me. I'm praying for healing and I'm trusting in you for healing. But if by claim your healing, you mean you still have the symptoms, you still have the cancerous mass in your body and all that, well, I'm whole, okay? I'm not sick. In other words, you're denying what's going on in your body. That's denial. That's not faith, okay? In fact, that kind of teaching lines right up with a cult called Christian science. Christian science isn't Christian, okay? It basically says that this physical world is not that important, you know, and that what's physical actually isn't kind of real. It's all spiritual and, and any bad things are just in your mind. And I mean, that's, that's not scriptural teaching, you know, but yet there's been a lot of people that have kind of bought into that teaching that if you somehow admit that there's something wrong with your body, you're not a person of faith. And that is not so. That is not so. I mean, show me any place in scripture where Jesus went to someone and said, I know you're sick. And um, I have healed you, but you still have the symptoms. They'll go away eventually. Or Peter or Paul. You don't see it in Scripture. When God heals someone, it is verifiable. But be people of faith. God is my healer. Jesus is my healer. I'm trusting him. I'm praying for it. You know? And if God has given you a word like he gave Peter, I'm going to heal you, then tell people that. You know what? The doctor says I have cancer. And there's some stuff going on in my body, but I believe God's spoken to me and he's going to heal me and I'm believing him for that. Lynn, you wanted to say something. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. So what's the result here? It says, verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now when it says all, that's just a way of saying, man, you know, have you ever been in a situation where just everybody loved it? You know, everybody, it doesn't mean literally every single person, but it means there were so many people that did, it's almost as everybody did. So it's saying there were so many people that were impacted by this healing that God's word came out. So many people became believers, all right? But it says they saw him. How did they see him? How did they even know about what happened? He got up and walked, so people that were there, but... I doubt, I mean, this is a pretty big place. I doubt everybody in the town was there when he got healed. So how did everybody else in the town here know about it? Word of mouth. He's now up and walking around town, right? The reason I bring that up is that letter B on your note sheet, public testimony is important. It's one of the reasons we take testimonies on Wednesday night. But I hope that Wednesday night is not the only time you ever give a testimony when God does something good for you. You need to tell your brothers and sisters in the Lord, but you need to let other people know too. So they can know what Jesus can do. And it'll point people to him, okay? So testimony, public praise and thanksgiving for what God does, whether it's a humongous miracle or even a small thing, it's very, very important. So let's go on. 
Letter three. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Is that right? Did Peter raise Tabitha from the dead? No, Jesus did. I said that for a reason. We gotta remember where this miraculous stuff is coming from. It's not coming from Peter. It's coming from Jesus. Jesus raises Tabitha from the dead. Let's look at verse 36 of chapter 9. Read part of the story and then make a couple comments, read the part, the rest of it. Now there was in Joppa, this is 10 miles away from where Peter's at. Okay, it's up on the coast. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, 10 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. So there's this disciple. She's a follower of Jesus. Her name is Tabitha or Dorcas. One is her Hebrew name or or Aramaic name. The other one is her Greek name. Both of those names mean gazelle, which in their culture was a symbol of grace and beauty. It was a very popular name for a woman. Okay, nowadays you probably wouldn't name a child or grandchild Dorcas. You can, but I'm not making fun. I'm just saying it's not something that's really popular. Um... But anyway, we see that this lady was always doing good and helping the poor, all right? She was probably a wealthy woman because of the multitude of good that she did. Um, uh, But also, it says they laid her in an upper room, and most homes did not have an upper room unless you were very, very wealthy, okay? Uh, Second half of verse 39 says, All the widows stood beside him weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Her ministry was helping the needy, making garments. Um, The widows and the orphans were the most needy of their society because there was no system in place to take care of them if the man of the house died. Okay, unless they had a close relative that was willing to take care of them. And so the first thing on your note sheet I have here is helping those in need is a very important and powerful ministry. You talk about ministry. What's really important in ministry? Preaching the gospel is important in ministry. There's no doubt that that's probably one of the most important ministries that there is. Although, if you think that's only relegated to people that can preach, you're wrong. Because preaching just basically means to proclaim or to share. Okay? So, preaching the gospel is tremendously important because people need to hear the gospel to know Jesus. But you know what? There are other kind of ministries that are very, very important too. And helping people in need... In fact, when you go through the Old Testament, one of the things that God had the most problem with his people about, besides the fact that they turned away from him and worshipped other gods and idols, was they didn't treat people right and they didn't take care of people in need. In fact, they took advantage of people in need. And God got really upset. Okay, He disciplined his people uh, very severely when they didn't take care of people in need. So helping those in need is a very important and powerful ministry. As I said, she was probably wealthy, so that means that she was supremely qualified, right? So people like us, unless we're very wealthy, probably can't help people in need, right? What are the qualifications needed for helping people in need? A willingness. There are no qualifications. That's the next thing I have on your note there. Anyone can help those in need. Anyone. You may not have a lot of financial resources, but there's other things you can do. You know, Maybe you will never preach, or at least not do it very often or very much, except to your spouse. 
Maybe, <laughs> seeing if you're still awake. Maybe you will never teach. Maybe you will never do certain things. But all of us can help people in need. And it's a very, very important ministry. You don't need special abilities. Okay? So this lady, she died. Usually the dead were buried very quickly because they didn't have any way of, in their culture anyway, the Egyptians did, but of embalming people and all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, so they sent for Peter. Um, it says that they uh, sent two men to him 10 miles away, urging him, please come to us without delay. All right. Well, why did they say, why did they send for Peter? Why did they just pray for her themselves? Lack of faith? Well, if they had a lack of faith, why'd they bother sending for Peter? Because Peter's done something like this. Okay. Yeah, we don't know what their level of faith was. Maybe there was a lot. I don't know. But I said, why didn't they pray for her? Nobody said anything. I guarantee you they prayed for her. But at that moment, God didn't answer it the way they wanted to or whatever. But can I tell you, I think they had some pretty good faith if she's dead and they're sending for Peter. Okay. I mean, they prayed. God didn't do it. They said, we're not giving up yet. They knew Peter was an apostle. They maybe had even heard about Aeneas. And uh, up to this point, as far as we know, Peter had never prayed for someone to be raised from the dead. But they probably knew, I'm sure, that Jesus had. And thinking, well, Peter's his follower. He's the leader of the church. Maybe, maybe, you know, so let's, let's send for him. Let's read the rest of the story now, this part of the story, verses 40 to 42. So um, anyway, Peter shows up. The widows say, look at what Dorcas did for us. And they're weeping because she's so important to them. Verse 40. But Peter put them all outside, outside the room, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it came became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Okay. Why do you think Peter sent them out of the room? We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say, but why do you think Peter sent them out of the room? Okay, we got several people. So what'd you say, Veronica? They might have been a distraction. What'd you say, Sharon? Okay, maybe some people were doubtful and he just wanted to remove anything that would be maybe quench any kind of faith or, or whatever. Okay, Chris? You're going to ask him when you get to heaven. Okay, well, then you can find out for sure. You know, again, this story is a lot like one from Jesus' life and ministry, right? When the little girl dies and the father comes. Well, actually, in the story, she's sick. And he says, would you come heal my daughter? And on the way, he gets stopped with the woman with the issue of blood. My time, that's all taken care of. Somebody says, your daughter's died, right? And when Jesus gets there, he puts everybody out of the room. And in that case, it is because of a lack of faith for sure. All right. But it could be that Peter's like, I've never done this before, but I'm going to pray. But let me do it exactly like Jesus did. That might help a little bit, you know. And it could be that he didn't know yet what God wanted to do. Because did God just raise people up from the dead all the time back then? No. But it maybe it's like, you know, I've got to seek God. I don't need all these people talking and showing me their garments and stuff. I need to I need to pray and see what God wants me to do. That's kind of what's in my mind. Again, we don't know for sure. Lynn, did you want to add to that? That's right. So perhaps they were not necessarily expecting Peter to pray for her to be raised. They just wanted the comfort that he could offer. That certainly is possible. Although the fact that they washed the body and put it in the room, is like we're waiting for Peter to get here because he's going to do something. So that could be too. But you know what? That, that's a very good, important point because we don't know that Peter's ever been used by God to raise the dead up to this point. And so not only was this something 
that God did for Tabitha, but it's something he did for her friends and for the whole church. And as we read, many people became believers, but he's also doing something in Peter. You know, every situation in our life, God can use for our benefit, for our family's benefit, for the people around us, for our brothers and sisters. You know, we need to look for those things. Vida. Vida was first. Lynn, I'll come back to you. Go ahead, Vida. Of course, at the time they sent for Jesus, Lazarus wasn't dead yet. But yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jesus did comfort them, too. Of course, the biggest comfort was the fact he raised their brother from the dead. Yeah, Lazarus. Mm-hmm. That's right. Even though Jesus was four days late, he's still on time. I like that. Even when we think Jesus is late, he's on time. So Peter's praying, and we can only speculate what exactly is he praying for. I think if I'm in the same situation, I'm praying for wisdom. I'm praying, God, what do you want to do here? How do you want to do it? You know, praying for direction, um, maybe praying that God would raise her from the dead. Um, but I personally think that God probably revealed to him, I'm going to raise her from the dead. You know, because that was not a normal, even in the midst of all the other miraculous things that could be done, that, that did not happen very much. Okay, And it hasn't happened much through history. Does God raise the dead today? Can God raise the dead today? I don't mean just spiritually. Yeah, but you don't hear about it very often, do you? I mean, every once in a while you might hear a story. I remember we had a missionary um, back when we first came here, almost 15 years ago, to Russia. And he came and he related a story about a guy over in Russia that had died and the church had prayed for him and he raised from the dead. I heard the story of another lady in China. She was 70 years old, and she was a leader of a house church, and she died, but she was the only one that knew where the Bibles were hidden. They had to hide the Bibles when they weren't having service. They couldn't find the Bibles. The believers gathered and prayed that God would raise her up so they'd know where the Bibles were, and she was raised, and she was upset. She didn't want to come back. And so they prayed that she would live for two days to get her affairs in order, and after two days, she died again. <laughs> this is a story I read about years ago that that really happened. So, you know, raising the dead is not something God typically does. He's got to have a good reason to do it because the death is the crowning glory for a believer, right? I always wondered, how did Lazarus feel about coming back, <laughs> you know? Because he lived for a while, you know, afterwards. That's right, Lynn has a testimony of having died. You know, and uh, God raised him up. A lot of times that's for a very short period of time. I'm not denying that it did happen. So, but what was the result? The result was the same. It says that many people believed in the Lord. All right. Let's go on to the last uh, part, uh, section. It's just one verse. Um, you might say, what's this got to do with everything? Number four, Peter stays in the area. Peter stays in the area. Look at verse 43. After this happened, she's raised from the dead. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Just a side note here, a tanner was somebody who was involved in an occupation that was considered kind of unclean by um, the Jews that were so fastidious about the law and all that because you worked with dead animals and carcasses and blood sometimes and stuff. So it shows that whether Peter was already inclined to be that way or not, but he's open to being used by God in unusual ways and associating with people that may not be the best of Jews. Now, he's going to take another step next week when God calls him to go to Gentiles because he's going to fight against that a little bit. We'll see that next week, okay? But he's starting along that way. But the point I wanted to make here is, is, is why did he stay? I believe he stayed was to disciple these new believers, okay? I have on your note sheet just this one point. Evangelism and miracles must be followed by discipleship. 
It's great to preach the gospel or share the gospel with somebody. They give their lives to Jesus, but they need to grow. It's great when God does a miracle, but miracles will not sustain you in the Christian life. Even if you have one after the other after the other, you've got to grow in that relationship. Um, the life application commentary on this section says, a faith built solely on miraculous experiences tends to be rather shaky. And I added to that my own thing word, and shallow. If you live your life from experience to experience to experience, whether it's miraculous or just some great religious and spiritual high, which we thank God for those, but that's all your relationship with God is based on and all you're looking for, you're going to be a shallow and shaky Christian. You've got to grow. Okay, you've got to be discipled. All right. And as I said, he's going to be in just the right place for the next part of God's plan, which is reaching Gentiles. And we'll look at that next week. So uh, we've looked at some things to apply along the way, but I've got some other important truths to apply um, from this passage um, that didn't really fit along the way, but I want to um, put them in here. Uh, let me just ask you this real quick, and we can take a lot of time with this. Why does God do miracles? We're talking about the miraculous. We're talking about Peter's miraculous ministry. Why does God do miracles? Why does he break the natural order of things to do things that wouldn't naturally happen? Joan. He can do whatever he wants, okay? So what are some of the reasons why God might want to do that? That is a good answer, though. It's sort of like parents telling their kids to do something. Why? Because I said so. (laughs) Chris. To prove that he is real and he has power And as we see in this passage, to provide a foundation upon which people can say this God is real and this message is real, and the result was a lot of people came to know him. Vita, you have a reason? To spread his truth. truth. Yeah, to draw attention. Yeah. How about to meet the person's need? Yeah, I mean, the person has had the miracle. It meets their need, right? Joan? That's one of the themes all through Ezekiel. God constantly says, so that they will know that I am God. So to draw people to himself. I think I saw a hand back here. Was that you, Tim? Tim. To increase faith. Lots of reasons why God might do the miraculous. Now, here's the big question that we all wrestle with. Why sometimes does God not do? In fact, many times God doesn't do a miracle when we really want him to. Why doesn't God just do a miracle every time we ask? Charles. It's his will. It goes back to something Lynn said at the very beginning. It's according to God's will. And why would it be God's will not to do something good for us? Because he knows there's something better. Because he knows there's something better. All right? Um, He knows what's best. So let me give you these last couple of points um, pretty quick. Number one, God does the miraculous, but he decides when and how. I was going to do something else. I totally forgot. I was going to read that to you. God does the miraculous, but we decide when and how. (laughs) Just to see if you're awake. We don't. But you know what? Sometimes we act like it. I've known Christians that acted like God will heal. And I'm going to tell them, Lord, I want this. And now I'm claiming it. And it's, you know, no, God decides. You know, we believe in healing. There are some Christian denominations, good Christian people that say, well, God did it then, but he doesn't really do it. He can do anything he wants, but he really doesn't do that much if ever now. You know, we believe God still heals. We have a membership class. We talk about what we believe. I talk about the, the main things that we believe. We believe that God still heals. But it's up to God when he does it. We pray for healing. We follow scripture. We anoint with oil. If people want to be anointed with oil, we, we stand on faith. God is the healer, but it's up to God. 
It's up to God. What? And how he does it. You know, sometimes God heals immediately. And sometimes he does it over time. Sometimes he waits a little while. Because there's a purpose that he's allowed that difficulty to come into our lives. And once that purpose has been fulfilled, then he'll take care of it. I heard an evangelist one time say it this way, and I really like this. You know, it says that healing's in the atonement. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins and to take care of all sin's effects, which is healing. So the healing's already paid for. The question is, when are we going to get it? Some of that is dependent on our faith. We need to be people of faith. But a lot of it's dependent on God's plan for us. And for God's plan for us, maybe our healing is going to come as soon as we ask for it. Maybe our healing is going to come next week. Maybe our healing is going to come when God's done working something out in us. Maybe our healing is going to come when we get to heaven. It's up to God. Number two, we should pray for miraculous healing, but also for God's will. We should pray for miraculous healing, but also for God's will. God, heal me. But Lord, do what you want to do in me. If there's something I'm supposed to be learning and growing and experiencing, then help me to see that. Help me not to be blinded because I'm so desperate that you heal me. Okay? Number three, when healing occurs, God should get all the credit. That's why when I got to point three there, I said that Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. No, he didn't. God did. He used Peter. God should get all the credit. Peter never took credit. I love this quote. Um, William Barclay said this. We think too much of what we can do, but too little of what Christ can do through us. You know, sometimes we get full of pride. With, yeah, what? You know, that's that's one danger. But the other one is, I'll never amount to anything really spiritually. God won't do much. You don't know what God might want to do through you. All right? Okay. The last one is this. Now, people get all excited about miracles, and we should. But a miraculously changed life is much more significant than a miraculously healed body. You know, even a miraculously healed body is still going to die one day. Unless Jesus comes back before they die. But you know what the real miracle is? Is a changed life. You know, someone who is a sinner, an enemy, a rebel against God, undeserving, every single one of us, undeserving of God's love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and God sent Jesus to die for us that our sins could be forgiven. And as we surrender our lives to him, he can totally change us. That's a real miracle. That's the best miracle. All right. Well, this is a very unique week. It only happens every once in a while. We finished on time. So we're going to pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to look at another episode from Peter's life and what we can learn from that. Lord, we thank you that you are a healer. You are the healer and you still heal today and you're always working in our lives for our good. Father, if there's people that are here tonight that they need a miraculous touch, we've been talking a lot about healing because that's in the story, but in their finances, in a relationship, whatever it might be, I pray that you do a miracle, Lord God. We look to you with faith, knowing that you are the one that can and that you want to do what is going to be best for us. So we ask for it. If there's something we need to do to see that happen, show us so we can do it. But God, we're going to trust in you that you know what's best. And in the midst of the time where we're waiting for you to intervene, help us to learn and grow whatever it is that we need to learn and to grow the way we need to grow and to continue to put our faith and hope and trust in you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the miracle of salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. And we all can have that now. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 